morning, everyone. Our first reading is from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to chapter 2, verse 4a. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in their image. In the image of God, they created them. Male and female, they created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, see, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything they had made, and indeed it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Chapter two, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and their multitude, all, all in their multitude. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that they had done and they rested on the seventh day from all the work that they'd done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it because on it, God rested from all the work they had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and earth when they were created. Amen. Our second reading is from 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 11 to 13. Finally, brothers and sisters, farewell. Put things in order, listen to my appeal, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with all of you. Amen. Okay, so let's uh, consider a, a sermon for Trinity Sunday. Today is Trinity Sunday. Um, I, I saw something going around on social media uh, yesterday, which was uh, how to avoid committing heresy whilst preaching on Trinity Sunday. And the answer is share pictures of kittens and say nothing more. John Donne once famously claimed that no one is an island. And in a 17th century metaphorical precursor, dare I say it, to the Brexit debate, he went on to suggest that Europe is the less if even one clod of earth of it be washed away, let alone an entire island or promontory. His famous sonnet 
concluded that any person's death diminished him because, as he said, I am involved in humankind. More recently, in the context of rebuilding relationships in South Africa in the wake of the abolition of apartheid, Desmond Tutu spoke of the African concept of Ubuntu. The idea that we are all interconnected through our common humanity. And every once in a while in the course of our lives, there come along those defining moments which bring home to us once again, the truth that life is not something that can ever truly be lived in isolation. And it's, it's these defining moments which remind us of the fact that we are, each of us, created to be in relationship. These defining moments are oftentimes of great happiness, times of great joy. So think about the birth of a, a new child, something which by its very nature necessitates the involvement of at least three people. I mean, there has to be a mother, there has to be a child, and there has to have been a father involved, at least biologically speaking, somewhere along the way. But of course, normally the birth of a child involves more, far more than the mother and the father and the baby. There's all the extended family, Grandparents, brothers, sisters, uncles, aunts, all those whose lives are affected by the gift of a new life. And then there are all the friends of the family, a network that can spread far and wide, spanning many countries. My social media is frequently bombarded with images of yet another cute little baby. So many people have a stake in the birth of just one new life. And all are concerned for the family's well-being, all are caught up in this gift. Or what about a wedding, the marriage of two people binding themselves to each other to create a new relationship? My own wedding was, can you believe it, nearly three decades ago, but I can still remember the build-up to it as if it were only yesterday. Now in theory, of course, a wedding can be reduced down to the couple, the witnesses and a registrar, and some of the weddings that have taken place over the last year have had to be pretty minimalist. I remember Louise's wedding, we had to make an emergency run down to Cardiff at the end of the first lockdown to conduct her wedding, and there were about 10 of us in the church. But even at a minimal level, a wedding is still a community event. After all, two people making promises to each other in the privacy of their own home does not constitute a wedding. However, if I cast my mind back to 1994 and my own wedding, I seem to remember that ours went to rather the opposite extreme. There were so many people wanting a stake in our special day. Our respective and respected parents, some of whom will be listening to this this morning, hello. Uh, I seem to remember had very different ideas to uh, both each other and to Liz and I about what the wedding should in the end be like. The negotiations we had to enter into would have been a test for any professional diplomat. So much so that on occasions we looked at each other and wondered whose wedding it really was. And actually I think the answer to that question is important because a wedding is not solely the property of the couple. A wedding is always a community event. The newly married couple take their place in society in a new way. And so births and weddings point us to this universal truth that I want us to grasp this morning, which is that life can never be truly lived apart from relationships with others. 
And that surely has been one of the lessons of the last year. And it's why those of us who are here this morning are compelled to be here because the relationships that we have somehow sustained online take flesh when we gather in a room with one another. And sometimes, of course, it is the sadnesses in life which remind us of our need for one another. This last year of pandemic has been a time when many have faced grief and loss and have had to do so from away from, in isolation, from the communities of support that would normally rally around at such times. Well, it seems to me there's no escaping it. Life in both good times and bad involves and demands relationships with other people if it is going to be life lived in all its fullness. A life lived in perpetual isolation with no participation in relationship is a life which in a significant way never truly finds its fullness. John Donne was right, no one is an island. Now, of course, not everyone's path in life includes marriage. Not everyone has to have children. But we do still all need other people, simply by virtue of being human, of being who we are created to be. We exist and define ourselves through relationship with and in relation to others. And the passage that Fifi read so beautifully earlier from Genesis represents an Israelite attempt from dating from the time of the Babylonian exile, uh, an Israelite attempt at understanding the world and its relationship with the God who made it. Let's listen again to a couple of verses from this creation story, which seeks to express the relationship between God and humanity. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness. So God created humankind in their image. In the image of God, they created them. Male and female, they created them. The amazing thing about these verses is that God uses the self-referential plural. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness. And what I think is clear from this is that the relational aspects of humanity that I've been talking about so far, that part of us which needs others in order to be fully complete, this was seen by the ancient Israelites as being a reflection of the relationship that exists within the very being and nature of God. And just as God was understood as existing in an eternal state of relationship, so too humanity was seen as having been created to exist in relationship. And it's this ancient insight that both God and humanity are relational in their very essence, which finds its expression in the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. And here we are on Trinity Sunday. The Old Testament has a number of other places apart from the Genesis reference that we've just looked at, where it hints at the fact that ancient Israelites understood their God as existing in relationship. And this way of thinking of God as plural found its way from the Hebrew Bible into the Christian tradition as the followers of Jesus 
attempted to understand the implications of their experience of Jesus as God on earth, their experience of the Holy Spirit as the power of God with them. And we, we thought about the Holy Spirit last week on Pentecost Sunday. And so Christians speak of the Trinity, of God existing in three persons, parent, son, and spirit. And as they do so, we are articulating our understanding of a God who exists in eternal relationship. And here, of course, we hit against some of the limits of human language. Uh, regrettably, we don't have the right pronouns to speak of God in Trinity. And just as the debates over he, his, her and hers can be helped by using the plural to speak of the singular, so also I think it is entirely appropriate for us to speak of God as they and theirs, along with he and she and his and hers. Because God is one God, but they are also Trinity. Contrary to popular belief, the doctrine of the Trinity as we know it today is not found in the Bible. It's the product of many discussions in the early church and scholars down the centuries to the present day have devoted much time and effort to trying to find the language to express what it means to have one God in three persons. A famous example of this is, uh, attempt is that of St. Patrick, who, uh, when he went on his evangelistic crusades to Ireland, famously used the shamrock to explain the Trinity. One, but with three leaves. But as with all analogies, it is an imperfect illustration. His basic point, of course, was that the shamrock has one leaf split into three parts. God is one God split into three persons, and it starts to fall down when we use the word split. <laughs> Whatever its inadequacies, this illustration of St. Patrick uh, provides the setting for a great comedy moment in the film Nuns on the Run. If you remember that film, uh, the gangster characters played by Eric Idle and Robbie Coltrane find themselves dressed as nuns hiding from the police in a convent school. And Robbie Coltrane's character finds himself having to lead a class in which he is expected to explain the doctrine of the Trinity to the young female students. And he stutters for a while and then half remembers the story of St. Patrick, which leads him to utter the immortal line, God is like a shamrock, small, green and split, split three ways. And so from the sublime to the ridiculous, theologians of varying abilities have sought to explain God in three persons. But I don't think this process of ongoing development and thought in seeking to understand the nature of God is anything to be concerned about. I hold very firmly to a doctrine of continuous revelation. We do not yet understand all that there is to be understood about the nature of God, and it is entirely appropriate for us to seek to evolve our language and our thought concepts as we come to understand more. After all, if God really is God, then they are so far beyond our comprehension that even our most eloquent and scholarly attempts at describing them will only scratch the surface of all that could be said. 
Now, it may be true that our understanding and our words are incomplete and inadequate, but nevertheless, the task is not in vain. The task of trying to understand and describe God as God is revealed to us is one of the great tasks of the Christian church because it shows us more of the God we worship and relate to as we go further into our understanding of who God is. And this task finds its beginnings in the New Testament where we see the early Christians trying to understand how it might be that the man Jesus could also be the almighty God. How can it be that the one who died a human death could also be seated on the throne in heaven? How can it be that God in heaven is nonetheless also present with people on earth, changing, transforming, renewing and empowering them for world-changing acts? These are the questions which drove the early stages of Trinitarian theology. And they're still questions which require an answer today as we continue to experience God as parent, son, and spirit. Paul Fiddes, a man I'm, I'm delighted to call a friend, the former principal, now retired of Regent's Park College in Oxford, I think one of the greatest Baptist minds of the late 20th, 21st centuries. He has written a lot on the doctrine of the Trinity. And he says that the doctrine of the Trinity is a concept which was invented to express an experience. It's not a doctrine that sits there complete and in itself of its own right. It's just the words that you're trying to conjure up to express your experience of God. Because God is experiential before God is theological. The words we use about God, the theos logos, the God words, the theology, are just there to put words on the experience. And so Paul Fiddes suggests that talk about Trinity is not speculative theologizing, such as how many angels can be found dancing on the head of a pin, but rather is an attempt to put into words the human experience of the living, loving, relational God. And just as the early Israelites sought to express their experience of divine human relationships through the creation story that they spun, that we now know as Genesis chapter one, so the Christian doctrine of the Trinity is an expression of the Christian experience of God, as God is encountered as divine parent, incarnate son, and ever-present spirit. At the end of 2 Corinthians, Paul gives us a glimpse of how in the middle of the first century, some 25 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, he sought to put into words his experience of God. He concludes his letter with the now famous blessing, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with all of you evermore, amen. How many services have we ended using those words? And here we see that for Paul, God's Trinitarian nature is directly related to the experience of God in the life of the Christian believer. When Paul speaks of Jesus, God, and the Holy Spirit, 
He directly relates these three persons to three aspects of the human experience of God, grace, love, and fellowship. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship or communion of the Spirit. It is God experienced through the Son who lived, died, and rose again, which speaks to our lives of the grace of God reaching out to us mere sinful humans with the promise of forgiveness and new life. It is God experienced as divine parent, which speaks of a love that is from the beginning, a love for the world that was created, a love which transcends all time and all activity. And it is God experienced through the spirit, which speaks of the ongoing presence of God with people, binding them to one another and to God in a fellowship of love and a communion of grace. Paul may not, in 2 Corinthians, have articulated the doctrine of the Trinity as classical theologians came to understand it, but his experience of the relational God at work in his own life and in the lives of those living in his congregations was such that his language pointed to God in three persons, a gracious, loving, communal God. And the Gospel of Matthew, written some years after Paul's letter to the Corinthians, provides us with another glimpse of how early Christians sought to express their experience of God. Let me read it to you now, Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. This passage is often referred to as the Great Commission because it contains the commands that the disciples of Jesus should uh, go into all the nations of the world, inviting people to be baptised into a relationship with God through Christ by the Spirit. And right at the heart of this commission, we find a recognition that entry into the Christian faith involves entry into a relationship with God who exists already in a state of eternal relationship. In many ways, the commands to baptise new believers in the name of the parent, the son and the spirit is Genesis chapter one, come full circle. Whereas Genesis one shows us a relational God creating a relational humanity, here in Matthew, we see a relational God inviting humanity back into that eternal divine relationship. The human need for deep, meaningful relationships, which is part of who we have been created to be and is part of how we experience ourselves, is seen in Matthew's gospel as finding its ultimate fulfillment in the invitation that God issues for us to enter into the life of the Trinitarian God. The practice of baptism by immersion speaks powerfully of this invitation. 
you've ever seen uh, a believer baptism, maybe here at Bloomsbury or somewhere else, picture it for a moment in your mind's eye. The person being baptized goes down into the water. Symbolically, they are plunging down into the grave. And just as the son went from the father to be plunged into the bitterness and alienation of death, to identify with mortal humanity through his death on the cross, so the believer in baptism identifies with the son in his death. But then as the person comes back up out of the water, they are being symbolically raised to new life in Christ and the hold of death on their life is seen to be broken as the power of the resurrection of the son is made known. And then as they are able to start breathing again, having been under the water and holding their breath for a few seconds, so the spirit of God, the breath of God, symbolically then opens up life to new possibilities. And so the water of death becomes the water of life and the baptized person is seen born again of both water and spirit, as Jesus puts it in John's gospel. So in this way, the command in Matthew to baptize in the name of the Trinitarian God becomes an invitation from God to all of us to all people, inviting everyone that has been made to enter into the relationships that already exist within the very person of God. I've mentioned this before, we're planning a baptismal service for later this year, getting the pool out, heating it up, filling it with water. If you've not yet been baptised as a believer and you are interested in that, come and talk to me. Those who accept the invitation to enter into relationship with the relational God then find themselves in a new life of eternal relationship. We're not talking here about the banishing of normal human loneliness, the kind experienced after the death of a loved one or the ending of a relationship. The pain of human separation remains a feature of our human experience. But what is banished? is the deep existential distance, the fear of being utterly alone in this universe. Jesus says to the disciples right at the end of Matthew's gospel, just after the Great Commission, remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so here we have at the end of Matthew's gospel, not just the Great Commission, but the Great Promise. And it is on the, this promise that the commission hangs. The promise is a promise of invitation. It is an outstretched hand extended from within the Trinity, inviting us to enter into the eternal relationships that exist within God. Paul Fiddes again, to conclude, uses the image of a divine dance. He pictures the three persons of the Trinity to express this invitation for us to join the dance. He uses uh, the painting by Matisse of the dancers. You can, I don't know if you can picture it in your mind. You've got, uh, it's kind of very symbolic, bold colors, people in a dance with a, a kind of a gap. Uh, and when, when Liz and I uh, were fortunate enough to see it, I think we saw the one in the Museum of Modern Art in New York uh, some years ago. Uh, I was able to sort of walk up to it and stand there with my arms looking like I was joining it because the figures are life-size, it's a huge painting. And I've got this photograph of me standing like I'm part of this dance. 
And for me, that is profoundly significant. We are invited to join the dance with God, joining the persons of the Trinity, encircling each other, weaving in and out between us as humans and them as God. Utterly inclusive. And so we meet the God who exists as three in one, parent, son, spirit, creator, redeemer, sustainer, love, grace, communion, eternal relationship, divine dance. And this God invites us to join in, to enter the dance and to become part of the eternal divine relationship. And as we do so, we become truly human. And this, I believe, is the gift of the gospel of Christ. <clears throat> well, I'm pleased to welcome Liz on the panel here with me and Fifi. And we have Jeff tuning in from home as well. Um, if you're online at home, please do add your comments to the chat. We'll, we'll come to those at some point. When Simon said to me, would you chair on Sunday? It's Trinity Sunday. I thought, oh dear, I don't want to be standing and saying to a panellist, now then, what do you think about the doctrine of the eternal subordination of the Son to the Father? And it was with great relief that I listened to the sermon this morning, which was <laughs> putting that sort of theological behaviour right in its place, I think. So I wonder, fellow panellists, if one of you would like to kick us off on a reflection about what we've heard today. I, I think it's um, theology after the events. And we need to consider the events that are concerned here. Back in 325, there was the Council of Nicaea, which basically kicked out Bishop Arius, who was ca campaigning that, God, that Jesus was man, um, and they exiled him, and they just tried to uh, suppress it. And then you, uh, so that introduced Jesus being of the same substance as God, and essentially we had a biinity. That's not the Trinity. The Spirit comes in one of the other councils up until Chalcedon in 461, or that's the date that sticks in my mind. Um, and then there are all sorts of councils after that that made things that some churches followed and some didn't. And then you get to the 1500s and a guy called Sassini and he challenged two fundamentals of the Christian faith. One was the substitution theory of the atonement and the other was the Trinity and led to a branch of the church called the Sassinians of which you get um, the Unitarians as being the, the major sort of denomination that came out of that conflict. But it's the, there was this enormous period of about a thousand years where we were being, um, how should we say, it's sort of almost like a communist thing of indoctrination of a theory of the Trinity. And we need to, to work with that and one of the things I think it causes problems with is it keeps separate God, whether it's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but it separates them from humans. And I'm a great believer in God incarnate. 
you know, if you take a Quaker view that there is something of God in everyone, when you make that separation, a sort of Trinitarian separation of something outside that it, you're dragging inside, doesn't really work for me. Thank you, Chair. I'm afraid the nerd in me has to point out for, for those at home that the Council of Chelsea was in AD 451. But oh, thank you. <laughs> we're only 10 years out. That's all right. Yes, I, I think that's important, isn't it? The doctrine of the Trinity is often being used to divide people and exclude people and decide who was in and who was out. And even nowadays, um, particularly among some of the more conservative branches of the church, there's quite a lot of argument about exactly what it means and who's in charge and who is subdued to uh, who is in subjugation to who and and you know we, we can miss the wood through the trees in these things can't we um who should i call on who's ready to this this what, what what are your thoughts um oh i'm not gonna i'm not gonna go into to the the i don't know to 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 go right back to trying to think about my history lessons when I was doing biblical studies and such like, I'm afraid you're not going to get anything quite so, um, yeah, sort of uh, scholarly from me. But I, I love the um, concept of um, God in relationship. And I really, um, it really um, stood out for me when Phoebe was reading, when she was specifically saying um, God as plural and they and them. And that was really helpful. I think the thing is that I'm so used to um, language in the way that I was brought up with it. So, you know, I, I always, I naturally say God is he, because that just comes out, because that's ingrained in me. Um, and I, I, I guess I don't really think much about Trinity any, as, as being this relationship that's actually a, a good thing. It's kind of just some kind of theory. And... But when I, when I stop and think about it, the idea of relationship is just a really powerful one. Um, and one that I, I think that so many people struggle with relationships. I mean, we, we all have to admit, we know bad relationships. We all know relationships that have gone wrong um, and broken relationships and ones that have been abusive. And I just, um, I feel certainly over this last year that the, the isolation many people have felt has been really difficult. And I think that we therefore view God in relationship in a similar kind of vein, but the idea that this is a relationship that is good um, and that is loving and that is not that hierarchical thing that I've kind of come to understand. I, I, think, I think I need to constantly rethink my language and I have to constantly rethink what I what I mean by trinity because it's 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 not helpful all the history i've got isn't helpful um so yeah that's just me wittering that i i love the concept of god in plural and god in relationship but i kind of can't get away from that human element that for me is more negative <laughs> um, well like before this i hadn't really thought so much about uh trinity so much, um, it's just kind of like an idea. Uh, and once, a long time ago, somebody told me that the Holy Spirit was a woman because she like tore up stuff after Jesus died and everything. <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> I really liked to hear about the community way, just as you were saying, Liz, and it just really made me think about like, um, like in uh, Native American 
drives how it like everyone eats or everyone starts and there's like kind of like that is like their whole body is um like the community is like a body um and like if it's like you can't like if one thing is missing then it's affecting everything i really uh really like that what simon was saying and it actually kind of makes more sense to me now like the trinity because if i think about it as a relationship then i think about it as like god is love and so like the three parts of the trinity they are all loving each other and so then they are seen as equal to me um rather than like father tells someone calls for the woman yeah so yeah <laughs> thank you uh, yeah i think this idea of relationships very important um in a church background i was in it was drummed into me follow christ as your pattern he's the if you want to see how to live a life and how to act and how to be with people follow christ and you know he is our childhood's pattern we sing in the christmas carol and and it seems to me that sort of following if 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 we're to look at how to live and we look at god there is god in relationship in community acting together and I think that's that's helpful for us to think about. Now, does anyone? I mean, we can ask people in the church as well. If anyone in the church has a question or a point they'd like to make, and we'll also refer to those online. If there's anyone, is there anyone feeling brave? Simon, is there, are there any sort of good points on the chat? Uh, yeah, there are. So uh, I've got a couple coming in as we speak, actually. Um, so Carolyn, oh, no, it's just to scroll up slightly, I've lost it. Um, Carolyn says, I wish we could talk of Jesus as they rather than he as well. Not denying the biological sex, but just not hinging the identity there, which I think is a really interesting point. Um, and uh, also Carolyn says, thanks to Jeff, uh, dragging inside doesn't work for me. Hazel says, uh, I have always liked Rublev's icon of the social trinity, which is three characters around a table, completely non-hierarchical, at ease and embracing and welcoming. And of course, those of us who did the um, Lent course, uh, looking at art and uh, the Bible, will have spent some time with Rublev's trinity as part of that. Um, Luke says, I used to be intimidated by the complexities of understanding the trinity, but now I'm learning to embrace and love the divine otherness of God, and that we can also learn so much about the diversity of humanity and all creation in looking to the Trinity. And Frank says, Jesus said he was sending the Spirit because he was about to end his earthly presence. He said the Spirit would lead us to all truth. So some really great comments there from the chat. So thank you to those at home who've contributed to our service today in that way. Thank you. Thank you. Right, I think we probably ought to move on looking at the time. Great God of all love, light and life, we come to you today in deep gratitude that you have made us to be your dearly loved children. We thank you that you call us by name and that you invite us to a new identity, a new purpose, a new life. And so on this day, as every day, we come to be born again, to discover afresh our being as your children, to find renewal and to know forgiveness. 
May our lived experience of this day reflect the unconditional love with which you embrace each moment of our lives. May our hopes and our dreams find completion in your love and may our fears and our pain find comfort in your internal embrace. Help us in our relationships with those we meet to be ambassadors of your love, which is poured out in Christ for the whole world. May we be peacemakers, may we be comforters, may we be those who have the courage to speak out against injustice and the conviction to act to bring the reality of your coming kingdom one step closer to those who cannot see it, let alone live it. And so we pray for those whose lives are lived in slavery to powers that distort and demean your image in humanity. We pray for those who through their actions cause wounds to innocent people. We pray for those who know what they are doing and for those who know not what they do. And in humility, we know that as we pray for others, we pray also for ourselves because we are all complicit in this, the shared sins of humanity. We recognize that your great love for us is merely one part of your great love for all, and that your outstretched arms that embrace us as your children also extend your love to all peoples in all countries. And so we pray for those places in your world where war and violence are most obvious. From those affected directly by recent events to those countless millions of refugees seeking a new and peaceful life away from their place of birth, we see suffering and desperation and death, and we long for your new world of peace and justice for those so affected. In repentance, we mourn those deaths that have occurred this week in our name, and we recognise that guilt spreads its net far and wide. Forgive us. Forgive those who choose death. Forgive those who know not what they do and those who know exactly what they are doing. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. May life triumph over death and light shine in the world's darkness. And so we pray with gratitude for aid workers and humanitarian agencies for negotiators and peacekeepers. We pray for those who are seeking to bring an end to the spirals of violence and who need courage to question the assumptions that fighting is the way to achieve peace. We pray for a renewal of community as people discover the common humanity we all share in Christ, which binds us to one another across all borders of color, creed or identity. We pray for our leaders and politicians, for those who we ask to take these decisions on our behalf. Give them wisdom, selflessness, and an unswerving commitment to the common good. And finally, we pray for ourselves. We know that the new world that you are bringing into being begins with us today. Help us to live the reality of what it means to be your children. 
Help us to hold on to your great love that we have experienced in our lives in the faithful expectation and hope that the same love extends to all people in all places. Help us to lay aside any special claim we may feel we have on our identity as your children. May we see you in the other, discover you in the stranger and meet you in the enemy. May your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. And now a Trinity blessing for us. May the blessings of a dynamically unchanging Trinity be ours. May the parents' enduring love accompany us in our lives. May Jesus Christ himself strengthen us to be co-builders of his kingdom. And may the Holy Spirit indwell and inspire us on our journey. Amen.